they are exerting the kind of economic power, political power, informational power, and cultural power that they are shaping individuals' lives and societies in ways that is unprecedented and profound, and in many ways making it almost impossible for the states to govern them. So I think that's one of the big challenges and and the key questions that we should be asking, whether these tech companies can ultimately even effectively be governed and what such governance would look like. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. This is your host, Rem Korteweg from the Klingendal Institute. And today's topic is the future of digital standards setting, regional competition or global harmonization. How to regulate the global digital economy. It's hard to open a newspaper or a magazine these days and not come across articles about the transformative potential of digital products and services like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Meanwhile, it is also impossible to imagine global trade without the support of digital services. Trade has become intimately connected with digital services and e-commerce, and it is only to be expected that as AI and other data-driven services proliferate across the economy, the impact on how trade is done will be equally substantial. Simultaneously, the call for regulation in the digital economy is louder than ever before, whether it is because of the advent of AI, growing concerns about disinformation, or the pursuit of cybersecurity. So much of global trade is intimately connected to and affected by developments in the digital space that it is worth exploring how regulation of the global digital economy is moving forward. Now, of course, when talking about regulation, it seems there is also a healthy amount of competition about who sets the standards. Because she who sets the standards of a product or service usually also has a material advantage in that market. Now, in previous podcasts, we have looked at how concerns about supply chain risk, export restrictions, and the desire to reduce unwanted dependencies is creating pressures towards more regionalization in the trade in goods. But how is the digital domain affected? Is there a risk that the digital trade space is also going to become more fragmented or even balkanized. And perhaps we are already there. How are geopolitical tensions, economic realities, and differing approaches to digital regulation impacting the digital domain? And what does this mean for the future? So today I'm going to talk about this with two brilliant experts that I'm very pleased to introduce to you. Firstly, from New York, I'm joined by Professor Anu Bradford. Anu is Professor of Law and International Organization at Columbia University and an expert on regulatory power and its impact on global markets. She's well known for her previous book entitled The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. And she is the author of the newly published book, Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. I'm sure we will talk about both the Brussels effect and digital empires in a minute. I'm also joined from Washington, D.C. by Ambassador Karen Kornblut. Karen is Distinguished Fellow for Technology and Competitiveness at the German Marshall Fund. A former U.S. ambassador to the OECD in the Obama administration, she was also part of the Clinton administration's efforts to commercialize the internet. She now leads GMF Digital, which works on ensuring that technology supports democracies across the world. A very warm welcome to both of you. Now, both of you work on technology and international governance and regulation. And we're having this conversation on the cusp of the AI summit in the UK. And I'm sure we're going to talk about US and European approaches to artificial intelligence and upcoming legislation in a European, British, or American context. 
But I wanted to start with you, Anu, um, by zooming out a little. So in your new book, Digital Empires, you describe the existence of three digital regulatory blocks, and you call them digital empires. But why have these different digital empires emerged, and, and how different is one from the other? So first of all, thank you so much for having me uh, here, Rem. I'm really delighted to share this conversation with, with you and Karen. So the basic premise of the digital empires is this idea that there is increasingly a global consensus that technology needs to be regulated. But there is no consensus on what that regulation ought to look like. And in the book, I argue that there are three primary sort of leading regulatory models, different ways to think about digital governance. There is the American market-driven model, the Chinese state-driven model, and the European rights-driven model. So the American model really prioritizes free internet and free market and incentives to innovate. So we reserve a very minimalist role for the government and in practice hand over the governance of technology to the tech companies themselves. So it is a techno-optimist, techno-libertarian view of the world. Chinese, on the other hand, are laser-focused in making China a technological superpower and prepared to leverage state resources to meet that goal. But the Chinese government also uses technology as the tool for censorship and surveillance and propaganda to ensure that they do and to entrench the political power of the Communist Party and ensure social stability in the nation. So the Europeans are often then portrayed as being forced to choose between these two technological superpowers because it does not have a strong technology industry on its own. But I argue that the Europeans are not forced to or willing to, to choose between the U.S. and China. The Chinese model is too oppressive for the Europeans. But at the same time, the American model is too permissive. So the Europeans have their own rights-driven way of governing the digital economy. It is an idea of a human-centric digital transformation where the preservation of fundamental rights of individuals, the democratic structures of the society, and a more fair distribution of the benefits from digital transformation takes the center stage. So I think these are the three primary ways that we can think about how we should regulate technology. And the reason I call these three empires is that none of these three models are really confined to the jurisdiction themselves. But each of them are exporting their regulatory models and through that also expanding their respective spheres of influence. Thanks, and I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll dive a, dive a little bit deeper into that in a in a second. But Karen, to bring you in, do you do you recognize this division that that Anu is describing, and do you also think it's a fair description of of the U.S. digital empire? Yeah, just to take a step back and look at the history and how we got here. So when the internet was first being commercialized, it was really seen in the U.S. where it was being commercialized as an infant industry, as an industry that was going to compete. Remember, the entrenched industry was the telecommunications industry. And that had been broken up through antitrust. And there was the Telecommunications Act, which was going to allow the local telecom monopolies to get into long distance. So there was a desire to find competition. And this new internet was seen as a competition. And they wanted to allow it to flourish. So there was a desire to, to hold off on regulation and allow it to flourish and to have be engineering driven. So there were the international, to the extent there was international governance, it was driven by engineers. It's this new model called multi-stakeholder that was not just governments, but also engineers, nonprofits, uh, civil society, and also the new companies. I totally agree with Anu. There was this optimism that this new industry was going to give voice to the voiceless and power to the powerless because everyone would now be a publisher and everyone would be able to innovate with people across distance. It was the death of distance, if you recall. It was disintermediating and getting rid of all these middlemen that had power, again, with this idea of competition. So I think that's what it comes out of. And then I think that we saw that as the industry grew up and centralized as we saw the growth of social media and the mobile phone. There was 
the growth of more and more gatekeepers, as you see in any industry, and then the algorithm also centralizing a lot of power. And the regulatory scheme didn't keep up and the ideology didn't change sufficiently, I think, to keep up. And now we're caught in this tech lash where people in the U.S. even are feeling the need for more control. But we're now in a situation where we have these enormous industries and people are afraid of Chinese competition if they rein in the companies. So we're sort of caught. And I think in Europe, we have a different history where because there weren't, as Anu said, there weren't the entrenched industry. What we saw was American companies coming in, undermining brick and mortar stores, undermining the tax base, choosing which jurisdiction to be regulated in. And it just seemed like very unfair competition and really damaging to domestic cultures and domestic industry. And now with the advent of AI, there's also this fear that Europe will not be able to compete in the new data-driven economy. And then, of course, there are national security interests as well. Do you want your data to be held, law enforcement or national security or sensitive government data to be held in non-domestic places? So uh, this is a, a big challenge, and I think we have to figure out our way out of this very entrenched situation. And as Anu said, you know, one of the interesting things is what happens to the, what you might call non-aligned countries and what do they, what do they choose? Well, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, how we talk about three big blocks or let's call them as Anu calls them empires. What position do the countries in the, in between then have? Are they forced to choose? Can they develop a alternative way of their own? Is this a non-zero sum exercise or is it kind of black and white? Either you choose the Chinese model, the US model, or the European model. And I think this is probably different, say, if you're in Africa than if you're in the UK or in Switzerland. But I think it's worth asking, like, how do countries in the middle respond to this? Perhaps I know you have, you, you have some thoughts on this. Yes, I think it's absolutely a key question, Rem. So my first um, observation would be that I don't see the world splintering very clearly into three distinct spheres of influence. Because if you think about how each of the empire is expanding its own influence, they are contributing a different layer to the digital architecture around the world. So the U.S.'s main export is the private power of its companies. These companies were set free to take over the world, and they have willingly done so. So these companies are now offering products and services to users around the world. At the same time, the Chinese are primarily exporting the infrastructure power. So Chinese companies are building 5G networks, undersea cables, data centers, smart cities, safe cities, along this digital Silk Road that reaches across Asia, many parts of Africa, Latin America, and even Europe. But then the Europeans also are exporting this superpower they have, which is regulation. And this is what I've labeled the Brussels effect. So the EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world, and very few of the global companies can afford not to trade in the EU. So as the price for accessing the European market, these companies need to follow European digital regulations. But often they decide that it is in their interest to extend that European regulation across their global production and global conduct so that they can avoid the cost of complying with multiple different regulatory regimes. So these companies are then often entrenching the European regulation and they are the instruments through which the European sphere of influence expands. So this already entails that there are many non-aligned markets, as parent mentions, where you see the presence of each of the three empires, where you see U.S. tech companies, Chinese infrastructure, and European regulations, which means that these empires are also colliding, or at least coexisting in many of these markets. And I think you're absolutely right that then there's a difference if you ask what kind of choices India is making regarding its infrastructure whether it is in the position to rein in the U.S. tech companies or the Chinese companies. And then if you compare that to a small, let's say, developing country that has few options but to accept the Chinese digital infrastructure, that is the only one that is pretty good and that they can afford. 
So they are drawn into the Chinese sphere of influence more so than a larger economy that is potentially in the position to then much better resist that. So I, I think it needs to be a more nuanced conversation. India, I think it's a good example that if you look at data privacy law, they copy the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, extensively. But then they include uh, localization provisions. That seems to be an element of the Chinese uh, state-driven model. So some of these non-aligned countries or battleground states, they are selectively or strategically emulating different aspects of different empires. And then they end up with more of a hybrid model of their own. That's really interesting that these models can actually coexist at the same at the same time, also in the in the same markets. Looking at Europe, I, I see a lot of overlap where at least there's a discussion moving away from having too much Chinese infrastructure, but very much having a presence of US companies in an EU regulated space. What what does that look like in the US? Because it seems that the US is trying to be more monolithic in the sense that there is only U.S. infrastructure or perhaps some European infrastructure, but at least not Chinese U.S. regulation and U.S. companies. So as you know, the U.S. has been using this new export control tool. It's called the direct product rule to try to undermine the growth of some of the Chinese infrastructure companies not only in the U.S., but in Europe and elsewhere, because it is it does see the threat of the of Chinese infrastructure. So we're trying to not only get Chinese infrastructure companies out of the U.S., but also out of your out of our allies and also undermine the growth of some of these companies where they are seen as national security threats. So um, that's a real difference in trade policy. This foreign direct product rule, what it says is very uniquely, that not only will the U.S. not allow the export of its technology, but it will not allow its components in somebody else's technology to be exported to China. And we'll see how this develops. There, It's very focused on, first it started out very focused on the infrastructure companies, and now it's focused on semiconductors that can be used in AI. And the idea that the administration has put out is, We don't want this to be a trade war. We don't want this to be a broad restriction. We want a small yard, as they say, with a high fence. And it's very focused, especially on AI, but not on keeping the advantage that the U.S. has steady, but on what the U.S. government has said is we want to freeze China's AI development where it is, which is very unique. And it's interesting, and it'll see how it it succeeds. I think one of the interesting things to think about when we think about these this fragmentation and these digital empires is the competing power of the non-aligned countries. And as you said, there's a big difference between a UK and a Japan, which are attempting to exert global leadership versus some of the other countries in the global south that I think have less leverage, but what power they exert. Also, the power that the platforms exert. So they are very good at what we call forum shopping. So they look for countries that have the most favorable regulatory scheme to set up in, the most favorable tax scheme to set up in, and then they use their leverage to try to undermine regulations that they don't like. So in some countries where the governments have attempted to require them to pay for news, they have said, well, we won't carry news at all. Even if there's a devastating national emergency, we're not going to cover news. And so there's you see this attempt to gain power by the platforms vis-a-vis governments, just as you see some of the non-aligned countries trying to gain leverage in this really interesting multipolar, you might say, environment. So I think there's there's two strands there that Karen is saying that I think it's really important for us to delve deeper into. So one is when we talk about these alliances and uh, different ways that these non-aligned countries are making choices. The U.S. is actively seeking to influence their choices, and so is China and the EU. And one element of these attempts to influence is to try to build a closer coalition among like-minded allies that share the values. So the promotion of democracy has been a key tenant in President Biden administration's foreign policy. And this does extend also to the domain of digital governance. 
So there has been close to cooperation and attempts to build alliances of so-called techno-democracies in order to consolidate a democratic front against the, the rising threat of, of China's role and the digital authoritarianism and how it spreads around the world. And, and there are different proposals of who then ought to be included in this coalition of techno-democracies. But some of the countries that were mentioned here, so it's often the UK and the EU, in addition to the United States, um, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea. And the idea there has been that in the midst of these geopolitical tensions, we cannot pursue full decoupling. None of these countries can be technologically sovereign. We cannot have full digital autonomy. But at the same time, these countries are seeking to de-risk and, and hedge and build the kind of coalitions and supply chains that they can trust because they are increasingly still trading with their allies. So this is part of the broader trade debates about French shoring, which is now then driving these conversations in the digital domain as well. And we can discuss how wise that is, how effective that is, and what the implications of dividing the world into these, these two ideological camps look like. The other issue that, that Karen mentioned I think is really important is that when we talk about the states and, and them as digital empires, I also mention or raise the question in the book whether the true empires are really the tech companies. So there is, for a good reason, a discussion that these companies are increasingly behaving like states. They are exerting the kind of economic power, political power, informational power, and cultural power that they are shaping individuals' lives and societies in ways that is unprecedented and profound, and in many ways making it almost impossible for the states to govern them. So I think that's one of the big challenges and, and the key questions that we should be asking, whether these tech companies can ultimately even effectively to be governed and what such governance would look like. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that governance, because the, what both of you mentioned is there is a degree of coexistence between these different models possible. We see that. At the same time, you've also raised the point about competition and how geopolitics is is creating in a way zero sum outcomes that there's either you are with us or you're you're against us if you will. And so before we talk a little bit about how governance can move forward, is a degree of convergence possible between these different approaches? To regulation. In Karen, in a way, you hinted at it in your opening comment when you said that there are concerns in the US about this US approach. Do you see a change in the way the US is starting to talk about digital regulation that perhaps is more aligned with, say, the European debate? I think there's a real effort there. Through the TTC, especially, there's been the trade and technology. Council, there's been a lot of effort to work with Europe on the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, and a lot of high-level conversations. But I don't feel that the U.S. has completed that job. I think there's a lot of leadership that the U.S. and Europe can do globally together. So if we look back in the energy space, for instance, when the um, OPEC had put in place the oil embargo, the U.S. worked through the OECD to create something called the International Energy Agency. And through the International Energy Agency, like-minded countries come together, share all kinds of data about supply forecasts and demand forecasts, and they also, importantly, coordinate releases of oil from their strategic petroleum reserves. So they really come together to act in unison. And that kind of effort, some kind of tech agency that would deal with things like friendshoring to make sure that there is semiconductor supply or there's supply of the minerals that are needed for clean energy products, I think would be tremendously useful. You couldn't, I don't think it would be successful if it was only democracies in that case. You know, in that case, you would need to go a little bit broader because where are the minerals coming from? But then you might imagine something else where the US and Europe led on creating something where countries could share different models of regulation and different models of innovation, how to do innovation. Uh, I'll throw out another idea. We don't want to leave behind the global South in terms of the good that some of these technologies can do, but they may not have the funding. 
So what can we do much more to compete with the Digital Silk Road, with the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of serious funding and serious research into things like how AI can help with healthcare, for example, and uh, vaccines. And then just to throw out another one, there are the dangers. And so what can we borrow from the nuclear model in terms of an IAEA type model to think about with China, with others, to think about how to avoid the real dangers that we all know exist from AI. So I think there are a bunch of international institutions or institutional arrangements. I'm not talking about global governments. I'm not talking about, you know, truth police, but I think there are different ways that governments and civil society can come together in different alliances, some only like-minded democracies, some with a very, very broad group, some with the people who we might think of as our competitors or even adversaries. Right. And that and that will, of course, depend on the on the topic at hand, because I can also imagine that geopolitics interferes and that there is a wish to institutionalize cooperation primarily between like minded countries, also to create a a numbers advantage in in pushing back the, the other. I mean, to to make this very concrete, I, I see a lot of EU US discussion but not that much U.S.-Chinese or EU-Chinese discussion on the future of digital regulation. Can I just mention one other thing, which is Japan is playing an interesting role here through the G7, had talked about digital free flow with trust, and it's resuscitated at this time, and it's showing great leadership in terms of looking at the fragmentation when it comes to rules around data. Uh, And we just chaired a group, the Global Task Force on Trusted Data Flows, that came out with a proposal that we hope will help the G7 as they try to implement Japan's very good efforts where they're talking about creating some kind of institutional framework to ensure that there's there are common principles among rule of law countries for how they can share data while still addressing some of their very real concerns. And so I think that's the kind of creative work that needs to that needs to happen and I think the UK is trying that right now with their AI summit so absolutely, I think Karen is very right to um, raise the role of Japan, which I think has been very welcome. And Japan is in a good position to bridge some of these differences and, and the UK uh, at the same time. I did want to say a few words on the transatlantic alignment and, and cooperation, because I also have been encouraged by the idea that there is an institutionalized setting, the dialogue that is taking place in the context of the Trade and Technology Council. So there I see a couple of reasons why I'm more optimistic in terms of the U.S. and the EU finding a common ground and then a couple of reservations that I have. So the first of all, the, the public opinion in the U.S. has shifted, and this was already acknowledged by Karen. So the Americans are seriously rethinking the wisdom of their commitment to techno-libertarian market-driven model, and there is clearly a, a greater demand for regulation. Americans no longer trust these tech companies, and many lawmakers, despite their differences, both Democrats and Republicans seem to agree that the big tech has become more powerful. So the Americans are ideologically shifting closer to the European regulatory model. Then there's this idea that the Americans know that the Europeans are charging ahead regardless. So do the Americans want to outsource the entire regulation of the digital economy to the Europeans through the Brussels effect, or would they rather seek to set those standards jointly with the Europeans? And I think third is something that we already recognize, that there is a shared concern about the challenge that China presents. And and there, I would say that in the early parts of the dialogue within the TCC, there was a greater gap between the Americans and Europeans, whereby the U.S. was willing to take a harder line against China and the Europeans were really straddling these deep economic ties and the vulnerabilities to European economies if there was further decoupling between China and and the EU. But there I see the, the Europeans shifting slightly closer to the American view. And I attribute that primarily to China's refusal to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine which has been politically extremely important for the Europeans and something that, that I think has given them the narrative that they do need to take more, more distance from China. So there is there's some set of 
internal and external reasons why I see that there's a pathway towards greater transatlantic alignment. But then at the same time, I am not overly optimistic of whether the U.S. can actually translate this shift in political sentiment into concrete legislation. Because we have in the U.S. largely dysfunctional Congress that is deeply polarized, that is not capable of generating regulations. There's also a a, a lot of uncertainty among the Europeans on what happens with the next presidential election. So right now there is a a good conversation uh, taking place between uh, the political leadership in Washington and in Brussels and in national capitals. But there is a lot of uncertainty on what happens when the presidential election potentially introduces a shift to the, the governance of the U.S. I guess I agree with what Anu is saying. But I would add that it's not just that the Congress is dysfunctional. I think there is a very strong national security feeling that the U.S. cannot, should not constrain their companies for fear it will fall behind in the competition with China. There is a very strong push to make the First Amendment concerns a real break on any regulation of these companies. And I think there's also still that optimism. I think there is still this great hope that these, that AI, that these companies will produce great new progress in healthcare and climate and so on. And there's also an appreciation for the consumer benefits. You know, people complain about the tech companies, but they were so appreciative that they could buy things easily during, during COVID. So I think we're a little schizophrenic on this. This is why I think this international architecture is so important that we create an international architecture, just as people have talked about an international architecture and financial regulation, because I don't think the U.S. wants to unilaterally regulate very much, but I think it would do so in different realms cooperatively, and especially in this, and the dangers of AI do so perhaps with just that they did in the nuclear situation, do this with competitors and even adversaries. The one the one set of areas where I think the U.S., there's still some promise because it, it's not necessarily constrained by the First Amendment and it's not, it could be seen as not constraining innovation, is in the consumer protection, almost like the seatbelts. So if, for instance, privacy, we still don't have a privacy law. California has put together a very strong privacy law and it's it's like GDPR, but it's more of an American model. And so we'll see how that goes and if that influences the U.S. overall in terms of manipulation. There's now a move. There was a number of attorney generals are just suing the platforms over the fact that they, quote unquote, manipulate or they use their design to keep kids online when it might be harmful to them. So these kinds of design elements and sort of seatbelt elements, I could see there being some some regulation in that context. So I think that's exactly right, that we need to distinguish across different domains of tech policy and recognize that some of those are much harder to overturn. Karen is absolutely right that this, this fear of interfering in free speech is profound. And in in my view, the content moderation part is probably hardest to regulate. It is so easy to get wrong, and it is very sort and it's very difficult to to get it right unless you are like China, where you are committed to a rather rigid censorship regime. But the countries like the United States and European nations that are very committed to freedom of expression, but at the same time harbor serious concerns about hate speech and disinformation and other harmful speech, it is a very difficult line to draw in terms of where you draw the line, who gets to draw the line. And that's why I I agree with Karen that that's probably where we are unlikely to see a shift in the U.S. And then the idea of technological competition um, with China I would say that AI is absolutely at the sort of the pivotal regulation there, where um, there's not only a concern of the economic future of the country and innovation, but also indeed the geopolitical balance of power and national security concerns. There is an understanding that AI will be critical for the future of warfare and military capabilities, and the Americans cannot just afford 
to cede that domain to China. So I think that is, is one domain where it is very uh, hard to pursue regulation. At the same time, some conversations that I've had with people in Washington, they say that the conversation about regulating AI is somehow different because even the companies themselves have emphasized to the lawmakers that there are existential risks. There is a genuine concern of the harms associated with AI alongside a tremendous excitement and hope about its benefits. So we will see whether something will happen there. There, I'm inclined to agree with Karen that the U.S. would like to see broader-based international regulation, but thus far it's defaulting to its market-driven principles. It's pursuing voluntary regulation, extracting these non-binding commitments from companies, which is a very different approach to what the Europeans are taking. So if I listen to you correctly, there are some positive movements in the way of a transatlantic convergence. It may, it may take some time, but the trend is of growing cooperation. But where does that then lead us? Doesn't that then end up in a situation where we have a risk of a bifurcated system, where you basically have two big digital empires? You have China with its model, which is developing uh, continuously, and then you have a transatlantic, West-like-minded, democratic set of rules and regulations and technologies, isn't then the challenge of how do you manage such a, a, a bifurcated system or perhaps even bringing in the Chinese into this conversation one way or the other? One concern that I have is about the, uh, I hate to use this term, but the global South, because there's so much about the new digital economy that is threatening to countries, whether it's disinformation whether it's lack of infrastructure so you feel like you can't compete and that your economy will be undermined, and uh, the cost of infrastructure. And not only can China and Russia sponsor disinformation that's very destabilizing to governments, but they can also offer the cure for that. They can offer more control, more surveillance, and the Chinese government can offer to pay for a lot of this infrastructure that's needed. And that can be very harmful. So we're talking about real political power that could be exploited in a, in a negative, anti-democratic fashion. And I feel like this is absolutely another area where the U.S. And, and Europe and other democracies need to cooperate. There's been a lot of talk. There have been a lot of initiatives, but it's not up to the level of commitment and resources that's absolutely needed to compete with China. So I hate to make it sound like another Cold War. I don't think it is, but I do think that the U.S., in, in the interest of the Global South, in the interest of development and, and human flourishing, needs to be playing much more U.S. and Europe in helping them enjoy the fruits of this uh, digital revolution. But rather than drawing up the or raising the drawbridge? Are there elements where we can actually talk and reach out to the Chinese in, in trying to build a bridge on digital regulation, Anu? There absolutely needs to be a continuing engagement. China is too important and interconnected of an economy for us to ignore. And I think we just need to acknowledge that there will no, not be such thing as complete decoupling. There are elements of the digital economy where we will see sort of separation of these spheres of influence. China has already walled off its digital market in the way that the U.S. tech giants who are present everywhere are not able to engage in their business in the Chinese market. And there's been now an effort to introduce more reciprocity for Americans to say that, look, you have been closing off your market to our companies. Why do we allow TikTok to be in our market despite the various risks that we perceive? So I unfortunately do not see that the near future would um, get us into a much better place in terms of geopolitical tensions and in terms of the continuing tech war and trade war. So there will be continuing rivalry. There will be tensions. The U.S. in many ways is playing Beijing's game and reinforcing the Chinese model. We see export controls, investment restrictions, whether it's inbound, whether it's outbound. And in that sense, we are shifting the entire world potentially towards greater techno-protectionism and techno-nationalism. And I doubt that serves the interest of the Europeans and Americans, but I understand where that response 
is coming from. So I think there are also elements of restraint and de-escalation because the commercial interests are so intertwined. It is very difficult for China to say that, look, we don't allow our companies to list in the U.S. anymore. These companies still need access to capital markets outside of China. The same way that the U.S. is pursuing export licensing regime and continues to selectively give those licenses because it would be too costly to, to basically expect its companies not to enter the Chinese market at all. Going back to they need these companies to thrive, to contribute to the U.S. innovation base, and they are making a lot of money in China. Apple alone has about 20% of its revenue tied to the Chinese market. But I, but I do want to, if I may, Rem, also to build on what Karen said about the, the need to not to forget the global South. And, and there's been, I think, too much complacency where the U.S. and the EU have not really reached out to these markets and have basically left them for the Chinese. But I don't think it's going to be easy because the Chinese infrastructure is much more affordable and the Americans and Europeans are not in the position to provide the kind of financing that would make the European and American infrastructure then competitive with what the Chinese are offering. So I think that is one thing. And if we say that, look, we can offer an infrastructure that is safe, you will not be surveilled by Beijing. Some of these countries don't share the same national security or geopolitical reasons. They are not as worried about their privacy. This is, for them, a luxury concern for others uh, in Europe and America to worry about. I use an anecdote in the book when the U.S. was trying to persuade Malaysia to reject the Chinese infrastructure. The response by Malaysian prime minister was, what is there to spy on in Malaysia? So some of these countries don't share all our concerns, which we could then use as an argument to, to offer a, a safer, cleaner networks as an alternative. And I, I do want to add one thing, and this, this was something that I thought about when, when writing the book, and I was quite uncomfortable acknowledging it, but I think it does need to be acknowledged. China has shown to the world that freedom is not necessary for innovation. They have managed to create a thriving digital economy without being free. And we would like to think, and as a strong proponent of liberal democracy, I would like to think that all good things flow from that freedom. But for many of the countries around the world, including in Global South, we cannot tell them that if you choose the Chinese influence, you choose control, but you cannot choose economic growth because those are incompatible. They look at China and say, look, I, I like what I see. I can have both. I can have innovation, economic growth, and I can have political control that serves uh, the goals of this government. So th there may be, though, a shift here. If you look at what's happening in generative AI, the Chinese tech companies are trailing behind the, the U.S. companies, I think in part, because when you are feeding the data into these large language models, that you're using to train generative AI. In China, they need to be made compatible with the country's censorship regime. That then limits the amount of data that can go into those models and that can be then guiding the applications of generative AI. So there may be a moment for us to say that we are vindicated that ultimately freedom also does serve better innovation. But if you look at the Chinese track record, they offer a model that is appealing to countries on political and on economic grounds. That's a very, very, very well put. Karen, any any final thoughts on this? I thought Anu's last point was really poignant and uh, unfortunately true. The one thing that I've heard that I wanted to add is that, you know, especially in 5G, where the U.S. doesn't have companies, but Europe does, it's such another example of where the U.S. and the EU need to compete. And when the U.S. goes around the world and says, please don't buy Chinese companies, it's saying, please buy European companies. And it's also pushing for a new technology called ORAN, which would allow for other, other competitors. But part of the problem is that some of these European companies don't have the rural servicing ability that a Huawei has or a ZTE has. And so it's hard for a country in Africa, let's say, to not choose the Chinese company, which can service in a large rural area. Well, if the U.S. and Europe are, are really serious about promoting an alternative to the Chinese, this, this again, is a, a, a serious issue where they need to roll up their sleeves 
and put some resources and really help the Global South have, have an actual choice. I feel that now there, there isn't sufficient choice. And, and the other piece of it is when the U.S. companies go into some of these countries on things like critical minerals, we are very slow. We have a lot of requirements. And you hear some of these countries say, well, it's much easier to deal with the Chinese. A factory will go up very quickly. A mine will come very quickly. The processing is an easy arrangement. So again, I think Europe and the U.S. need to think of their new industrial policy, which is a phrase we hear a lot. They need to think of their industrial policy as not domestic industrial policy and not even just transatlantic industrial policy, but really a global approach to giving countries a real choice. Yeah, and and I mean, you're right that we are now kind of living in a period where policymakers seem to have said goodbye to the free market and are opting for an industrial policy or even an economic security policy model instead. But it comes back also to the point that Anu made that it shouldn't lead us down the path of techno-protectionism, which I do think is a is a distinct concern. And that uh, unfortunately, as a result, we might actually be playing Beijing's game. I mean, I think that's a trap to think that. I mean, the Chinese exploited the WTO. They subsidized their domestic champions. They forced sales. They used cyber attacks to steal intellectual property. So they were not playing a free trade game. And what the U.S. is trying to do is to push back. And what it says is it's still committed to the rules-based order and to, and to the WTO, but it can't it can't allow that system to be weaponized by the Chinese. And I think we have to take that argument seriously and think about, okay, if we don't want techno-protectionism, which I think nobody wants, then what, what can we do to reform the WTO and to reform the trading system so that it can't be weaponized in that fashion? So may I just very quickly add to that, that my concern is if the U.S. and the EU while seeking to respond to the changing geoeconomic environment and, and, and recognizing that they cannot be naive and recognizing that the rules of the game that they designed for the WTO no longer apply and they were not respected by China. But my concern is that the U.S. is shifting very far from what has made it so successful from those principles. So it has been a commitment to the innovation and commitment still to freedom and the, the market forces in ways that the government is very sort of cautious in when and how it intervenes. And right now, the push for to really lean so heavily into industrial policy is really pertinent. And the same in Europe. In many ways, the Europeans, we have a uh, many commissioners who are advocating very forceful industrial policy that are saying that the European merger control should be converted in a tool for industrial policy to build European national champions, or then propose that data localization is the only way to keep European data safe. So there, I would want to remind the European decision makers that if you take the Brussels effect seriously, it is a tool to export good and bad regulations alike. And Europe doesn't want to become the major exporter of techno-protectionism. If Europe starts using competition policy as a tool for industrial policy, guess what happens when European companies are going to Brazil and seek to acquire a Brazilian company? They are going to tell us that they like their national champions fine as well. And that is not the European path to greater competitiveness and economic growth. So while we do see that there is an inevitable adjustment in the US and in the EU, I would really caution both to forget what are their true values, what are their strengths, and what is the kind of vision for global digital economy that they want to commit to and actively seek to advance. And I so agree with that. And with the caution, just as you caution European policymakers, I would caution American policymakers in exactly what you're talking about, which is we don't want to lose the ideological argument. And part of not losing that is we have to put forward an international rules-based al alternative if we didn't like the way things were going before with China weaponizing the WTO. And that's where I think 
either we can reform the international institutions like the WTO, or if we feel that we've come up against a brick wall, we need to put forward other arrangements that are international, that are based on rules, that are based on alliances, so that we do not send this message to the world that we are turning inward and encourage others to to turn inward and for a, a least common denominator approach. And on that note, unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. We've covered a lot of ground, and I'm very interested to see that a discussion about digital regulation also drew in a reflection on the WTO and on global trade in general and on uh, uh, technology cooperation. It's also good to note that despite having sort of digital empires, there seems to be a degree of convergence or at least an alignment taking place. I, I, I draw some optimism from that. But of course, the challenges are still very much there, driven very much by a complex and disturbing geopolitical context. Thank you very much to Professor Anu Bradford and to Ambassador Karen Kornblue. It has been very fascinating and very educational. I learned a lot. Please check out our other conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series at www.aig.com gts or simply get them through your podcast app. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, SEBRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.